did I not see this coming? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am your host, Lindsay, and we are starting part two of our Julie Rowe, Chad Daybell, Lori Daybell podcast. With me, I have Jacob Newman, I have Lisa Heaton, and Nathan Everett, and we are going to be talking about the sort of, I want to call it comparative theology of Chad Daybell and Julie Rowe, which I never thought I would do. But I want to ask you a question, because in our first episode. If you haven't listened to the first part, you need to. Lisa just gave us a killer timeline on, maybe I shouldn't use that word. She gave us a really great timeline (laughs) on, uh, gosh, this is hard to talk about, on the Daybells. And Nathan introduced us to Chad Daybell and Jacob Newman introduced us to Julie Rowe. So please listen to that if you haven't. I want to ask all of you how, I want to ask you this question. Several Mormon fundamentalists have criticized me and several LDS uh, scholars have criticized me for calling these people Mormon, calling this Mormon theology, calling them Mormon fundamentalists. I don't think I'm wrong about that. I think that they fit. I think that they are taking certain Mormon fundamentals and really expanding on them in ways that other fundamentalists have. For example, we we talked about Jim Harmston in TLC, who he goes on to write a more expansive theology on Mormon heaven and Mormon progression and things like that. And I, and I see these people doing something similar. So I want to hear all of your thoughts first on are these, can we call them Mormon? Can we relate them with the LDS church? I know the LDS church would not like to be associated with them, but what do you guys think about that? So I don't know how you make the argument that they're not. I'd be interested in hearing that argument because it's, it is, to me, it's so clearly um, rooted in LDS theology, the, the doctrine of preparedness, um, preparing for the latter days. Uh, so I, I just, I would really be really interested to see what the, what those arguments are to me. It's, it's just completely inseparable. I think one of the, one of the responses would be, it, it makes LDS people extremely uncomfortable if they stray away from any anything that's correlated, published, printed by the church. But I think that you can argue that at least most of the doctrines, and, and we can dig into those more, like I want to talk about multiple mortal probations and eternal progression and all of that. They would say that that's not part of Mormon cosmology, and I would disagree. Jacob and Lisa, what do you guys think? I mean, like I mentioned in our last episode of the podcast, I've really been following Chad Daybell very closely since I was working at Siegel Book back in the day, you know, 2007, 2008. Kind of an interesting thing about him is that he felt inspired to start this publishing company. He was previously working for another publishing company, Cedar Fort, which is another Mormon publisher. But he felt inspired to start this publishing company and he published a wide array of works that really fit into the Mormon experience from everything from talking about parents who had experiences with their children before they were born on this earth to Julie Rowe's near-death experiences and kind of everything in between. So when I saw that he had gone more off the rails, so to speak, it was not necessarily surprising to me because this all feels like a very natural extension of his social and political beliefs that he's printed in all of the books that he's published over the past 10 years. Yeah, I like that. And I think think that that's important. We've talked about this before, but anyone that publishes and then sells their book at an LDS-owned bookstore, by all intents and purposes, for most LDS people, at least in the Wasatch Front, it might as well be official church sources. Wouldn't you think that you, you have all had experience with this? What do you think about that? The Mormons view... Can you okay, ask the question one more time? If 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 you can sell the book at Siegel Book or Desert Book, wouldn't you say that a lot of LDS people feel that it's com- they're comfortable reading it? Oh, yes, exactly. I would definitely say that. I mean, I still remember when, I don't think people know this for context, but Siegel Book was originally an independent bookseller. And then at the end of 2006, it was actually bought by Deseret Book. And so it added that additional kind of stamp of approval to things that were sold in the bookstore as, you know, this is owned by the church. Um, there was also speculation at the time that they, the church wanted to control kind of what was going in the bookstore. But obviously, at the end of the day, they were selling things by Julie Rowe. They were selling things by Chad Daybell um, that were fitting into this worldview that 
personally, some aspects of it, I find it kind of repugnant. I'm not going to lie, but I mean, people felt comfortable buying it because it was sold by the church. I have something to add there. Chad Daybell had an experience in 2003 where his book was removed off the shelves of Deseret Book. And that, I think he likely carried some pain from that as well and felt that that repudiated him to some degree. And um, later on, when he published Hector Sosa's book, I believe it was, even Siegel book didn't take it and put it on their shelves. There had just been such a big to do over Julie Rowe's book. And so I think it's interesting and could have caused Chad to branch off a little more because of that. Hector Sosa Sosa is another rabbit hole and a half. You could do a podcast about him for sure. We, we, I was just going to say, we should talk about Hector Sosa because I was back, you know, deeply embedded in these groups for a long time. And Hector was my guy, but I've kind of, he's fallen off the radar. I haven't joined any of their mailing lists or anything for a while. Anyone know what's going on with Hector Sosa? For anyone that doesn't know, he was kind of, he was an up-and-coming player in the Julie Rowe avow scene. He was a major prepper, having lots of dreams and visions. Anyone have an update on him? I can give one. So he continues to be active on the website Avow, the forum, with this, this preparedness website. He's logged in there all the time. He posts frequently. I think when he published his first book, he did say that he didn't plan to publish another one, which is sort of unlike chad and julie and i know he earned more respect from some people because of that he has been running a private forum of his own called pathway to zion for several years now and sharing his dreams and visions there it was a site that you had to have a personal invitation from someone who was already a member to join and you had to use your real name and your real picture so they you were interacting, you knew who you were interacting with. As this case has been gaining more publicity, and especially after February 7th, when some information came out about the more extreme, what the mainstream would consider extreme beliefs of multiple mortal probations and zombies and possession by dark spirits, Hector has pulled that forum down and send a letter to the members of it saying, we're all going to start getting excommunicated if you don't watch what you say. Don't talk about multiple mortal probations to your bishop and don't talk about energy healing because the hammer's coming down. And we have seen excommunications over the past year to year and a half. Um, Mike Stroud, who's a popular figure, was excommunicated in February 2019 and then Julie's was finalized, I believe, in April or May 2019. That's so Hector kind of they might be coming for him too. But so he's kind of gone underground, but he's still there participating. Yeah, and he brings up an interesting thing that I want to talk about with you guys too, which is if you talk to a mainstream LDS person, they will say, we're not Mormon fundamentalists. We're not polygamists. We don't do that. But there is a whole crop of people, and I would say a large crop of people, and we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of people, enough to fill, you know, huge venues that follow this kind of stuff. They're looking for a spiritual outlet. In my opinion, they're looking for spiritual expression in a correlated church. And this is one way that, you know, personal uh, revelation is expressing itself in a church that has sort of abandoned a lot of its mystical, magical practices. I want to hear your guys' opinions on why you think this is so prevalent, but I want listeners to know that you can distance yourself from polygamy all you want. There are plenty of LDS polygamists that are secretly under the the radar, but I would say the majority of people in the LDS church who are really into it uh, follow some strain of this theology or doctrine or movement. Is that fair to say? Maybe no one would know but me. <laughs> I mean, I get, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. I get messages probably each month about someone saying, hey, my dad, my brother, my sister, someone has, is following this guy. Uh, there's a whole, there's a whole sect up in Boise. I've talked about, you know, who have a lot of theology about Italy, which is really interesting in the last days because of what's going on with coronavirus in Italy. John Miller, who, uh, 
run similar movements. We even found out, uh, as we talked about in the podcast, that John McNaughton, the the painter, who is a very uh, right wing conservative, I don't even know if, how to explain this guy, painter who paints, you know, Obama ripping up the Constitution and whatever, he has been publishing under a pseudonym as well. And publishing his own visions and experiences. So why do you guys think that it's expressing itself this way? I mean, I've wondered a lot about this as I've thought, as I've thought about Chad and as I've thought of kind of these more mainstream individuals who have veered off into a fundamental direction. And I think we can't, we can't divorce or extricate things from a socio-political context in our country. I think in particular, I think a lot of the expressions that we see of fundamentalism are rooted in a conservative worldview. They're rooted in a belief that um, there's a decay in the moral fabric of our country because of, you know, whether it be same-sex marriage, the election of the first African-American president, or anything like that. I think that Mormons in the mainstream LDS movement identify with a lot of aspects of the uh, mainstream conservative culture that are um, a little bit extreme, I would say. And so when you can add a religious component to it and you can find voices who are saying that they, you know, speak to God, they receive revelation from God and that these tribulations are coming because of the result of this, uh, because of the decay in our morals or decay in our society, whatever you want to call it. I think it, really resonates with LDS people because it affirms their worldview to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think that's absolutely true. And as we're going to see as we dive into some of Julie Rose theology and, and sort of why I brought you all on here, to me, Mormonism is interesting because it gives people uh, limited tools for a worldview. And then it says you can't go outside these tools. And so people have to make sense of certain aspects like you brought up, Jacob. Like, you know, this is controversial, but I've I did a whole Sunstone presentation this this year on Warren Jeffs' theology. Most Mormon fundamentalists and LDS people say, he's not Mormon. What he's doing isn't Mormon. That's not part of our cosmology. But you can trace Warren Jeffs' doctrines back to original sources and original texts. I'm not saying that that's what the original texts or sources, you know, intended. They did not intend what Warren Jeffs did with it. But I see him as a man who, who was likely uh, a pedophile. He's a pedophile. He's attracted to prepubescent children. And he had to use uh, the tools that he had to make sense of that. He didn't have any resources outside of that. So he used Mormon tools. He didn't have internet. He didn't have a lot of secular learning. So he used Mormon doctrine. And I see Julie Rowe doing something similar. Not, not that hers is on the same level as Warren Jeffs. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that what Mormonism has done is because it's so skeptical of outside sources and resources, it forces a lot of faithful people to use the tools that they are given. And that's the scriptures, that's uh, Mormon text, Mormon sources. And so you're really piecemealing a worldview together, making sense of modern day things that maybe don't align with Mormonism through Mormon a Mormon lens, if that makes sense. I think that I mentioned this a little bit before, but these little seedlings of theology were planted way back in Joseph Smith's time. And these groups search and search sometimes a lot more deeply than just your member of today who's reading the ensign and the things that are coming out today. And they go back in time and they find these bits and pieces and try to make sense of it. And these are some of the paths it leads down. I also think that Lindsay, I think I saw a post that you did right at the start of the Daybell case kind of talking about how the church is so hierarchical and kind of a pyramid where only so many people can move up in it to the next level that other people want to share what they consider their gifts too, but they're not welcome in the organization of the church. And so they start to branch off and find others to speak to. Another thing that is interesting, this is something that Ryan McKnight of the Truth and Transparency Foundation brought up in one of these other Facebook groups that's about the case. They brought him on to do a Facebook Live on there, and he kind of went through a history of break-off Mormon groups. And he mentioned that since in the 1970s and 1980s, there was kind of a 
apocalyptic fever preparedness. Um, you were hearing from the pulpit a lot about get your two-year supply and these calamities are coming. And, you know, this was kind of as the year 2000 was approaching. Interestingly, there was the same type of thing in the 1870s as that turn of the century was approaching, where people start to ramp up and think, this is it, this is it, Christ is going to come, it's all going to change, we got to be prepared. And that these people of Chad's age and just grew up on this messaging of needing to be prepared, and then suddenly it completely fell off in the messaging from the mainstream church, and it wasn't the thing that was being talked about anymore. And so they had to make sense of that, of why... Why was it being talked about so, so much? And now it's not being talked about nearly as much. Maybe the warning time is done. And now it's time to get on it for yourself. They're not going to hold you by the hand anymore. And they start to branch off in that way because that was something that they grew up with in their childhood and thought was a main part of the church at that time. Yeah, that's that's so perfect. And we had a scholar that came to Sunstone, Seattle, who is who writes on uh, evangelical millenarianism. So basically, the idea that the world is going to end. He said he said something really important that I think he talked a lot about prophecy and how how these things come across. And he said prophecy is consistently. He said all good prophecy is consistently re- repurposable, which basically you can take these prophecies. And you can say things, you know, about the end coming and then it doesn't come and then you can repurpose it, you know, for later. And, and I remember during the Blood Moon stuff, they were saying, you know, no big calamity came the way that they were saying that it was going to happen. And so what I heard was, oh, it's the beginning of the seven years of destruction where we've just entered it. And I think that that's so interesting how how people do that. But anyway, yeah, I think... I think that we're seeing that. So how, how Julie Rowe is back now. She has been making a lot of videos. Well, I mean, she's never went away, but she's really taking a more prominent place with this virus, uh, the coronavirus, and with Chad Daybell case. So I want to talk about what she's talking about, uh, the videos she's been making, how we think his followers and her followers are responding to this. Because with all of this global pandemic, it's got a lot of people feeling, I don't know if smug is the right word, but I know a lot of LDS people that I've talked to were like, well, we're prepared. No one else is. We've been we've been preparing for this our whole lives. What are you guys seeing out there first as far as community response to this? Someone gave me a login for the Avow Forum, another voice of warning. It's a pay forum, and I had never been a part of it, but... Um, there is a very much a sense of vindication because people have pointed fingers at these people and made them feel like they were silly for preparing or they were, you know, being um, too zealous and they do feel like the signs are there and they're really coming. Um, One thing kind of on what you said before was that Chad had at one time said he would not publish the last book in his last fictional series until after the Wasatch wake up earthquake and it never came and it never came. And I think eventually he did want to publish. And so he did publish the book. Um, I want to say it was in the summer of 2018. I could be wrong on that, but in any case on that note of repurposing, he said, actually, I think maybe the wake up was, spiritual rather than an actual physical earthquake. And it was that now President Nelson is our prophet and he's really been shaking up a lot of things. And that was what the great shaking is and the Wasatch wake up rather than an actual earthquake. So they do find ways. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it's Matthew Sutton, the scholar Matthew Sutton, who, who said that, and it's so true because we've talked about this on the podcast, but when for example, I'm, I'm using the FLDS again. Sorry, sorry to keep using them in this context. But when Rule and Jeffs did the gathering, gathered everybody from all over the FLDS to Short Creek for the Winter Olympics, they all waited in the park. They'd all mortgaged their homes. They'd all, you know, racked up their credit card debt, sold everything, walked away from million dollar businesses. I mean, that's a pretty confident move to give an exact date and time. And I always say, if you're a prophet, like, don't give an exact date and time. Just like, take my advice. 
don't do it. It doesn't work well. But he does it. Nothing happens. And of course, it was like, who among you was sinning to bring, you know, to to bring this to pass and to halt the the resurrection? One of the the prophets who I am betrothed to, so lucky, hashtag seriously so blessed. He believes that uh, once we get five wives, then we will usher in the second coming together. So in, in our little harem, which was performed with an internet marriage, by the way, our wedding was uh, performed without my consent or knowledge. I found out about it later. But I think that when that doesn't happen, we're going to have to make sense of new theology. And I think that that's what we're seeing with with uh, these people. What do you guys think, Nathan and Jacob? I mean, I think all of this context has been so interesting. I mean, watching the stuff with Chad, with Lori, and then with Julie, I mean, it's been really interesting to see how when you're a prophet or a prophetess in Mormonism and you make these specific predictions, there's always seems to be a loophole for you to kind of make your worldview fit. So when the Wasatch wake up didn't happen in 2016, like, like we said earlier, Chad, you know, said, well, maybe it was a spiritual wake up or um, for Julie Rowe, she, you know, had been waiting for the Wasatch wake up forever. And then it becomes the wake up to the Wasatch wake up. So I think that, the thing that's been really interesting about me for all these individuals is that they're using these Mormon tools, like you mentioned, Lindsay, to make sense of the world that they have. And they're applying them to try to make sense of things not working out the way that they hoped for them to. And just seeing their logic has been, has been really enlightening, I think, um, and really helps me to understand where they're coming from a little bit, because I think they've placed so much of their self-worth and value on being associated with these prepper groups or being, you know, one of the chosen or the elect that are going to be ready for the call out that this situation that we're in right now is like, Oh, this is, it's going to get real. It's going to really happen. And this is going to really validate everything that's happened in my worldview. And, you know, everyone else is going to be left behind. And then finally we're going to see the cities of light. And finally there's going to be the Wasatch wake up and it will all be proven to those naysayers. I got to admit I'm, I'm in Utah and it was scary enough going through all the pandemic stuff and we don't need to get into all of that. But then I wake up from my bed from an earthquake and like instantly my Mormon brain's like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like the second every, coming. Yeah. I mean, and I think I've talked about this before, but I grew up in a bedroom right next to uh, the food storage room. And so I remember reading Cleon Skousen, hearing stuff at church and I would fall asleep at night. This is real. I would ruminate on my sweet neighbor and having to prepare myself to fight her with a gun because there was a prophecy we might have to fight our neighbors for food. And just thinking like, she's a Gentile. She's not one of us. Do I really have to kill my sweet neighbor for our like canned, you know, pinto beans? And I would think about that at night. And so all of that sort of came back with that earthquake. So I can see why this is sort of triggering that response. And I think I've seen a lot of ex-Mormons be like, man, this is messing me up a little bit. What if the church is true? And I think that I say, well, if if you need some reassurance there, just watch a Julie Rowe video. She's actually been helping me feel better about this because like I told Jacob, it's like this woman has been preparing for this for her whole life. And now it's here. She knows exactly what to do. She's going to take the faithful to the second coming. And I said, Jacob, is this what it's like? They never tell you in prophecy what the like wicked are doing, except for like burning. And I'm not burning yet, but I get to like, we get to watch the prophets do their thing. And it's really entertaining. And they never, they never mention that part about how the wicked will be entertained by the prophets and the righteous till we burn. But I'm enjoying it. Aren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, Listening to Julie Rowe over the past couple of weeks, my husband Christian always teases me like, why are you listening to her? But I think part of it is just, I I don't know. I mean, it's just fascinating to hear her talk about this with such certainty. When I, you know, after transitioning out of Mormonism, um, I feel like life becomes a lot more gray but for these people, life is just so black and white. Like everything is just so clear cut and everything is just like, you know, this is a sign of the second coming. This is the sign of things to come. And Julie just seems to know that, you know, this is, 
this is the first in the many, many things that are going to come. The, the coronavirus is just not even going to compare to the tribulations that are coming. I know. It's that certainty. And they have an answer for everything, right? And it's kind of, again, I'm not saying at all that I, I, I need to make this clear. I do not believe in these claims anymore. However, there's something sort of familiar about it that makes me feel like, okay, well, at least the Mormons got it. Like, these people got it figured out. So none of us can make sense of anything that's going on. But these people got it. And it's it's kind of nice. And I, I have a book here. I'm looking on my shelf. It's called The Life Before. Gotta remember that. Okay, hold on. Let me grab it. Yeah, have you guys ever heard of this book? It's called The Life Before, How Our Premortal Existence Affects Our Mortal Life. And it is published by Brent L. Topp, published by Desert Book. And I remember reading this in college. And he has, he talks about Satan's plan and, and the, you know, the earth and, and how all this goes down. And he says, we often wonder why, you know, people would follow Hitler and, and become a Nazi. Why would they do that? Well, it's so nice. And he says in his book, it's so nice to have someone know all the answers. And he and he compared it to Satan in the preexistence that Satan, the reason why people followed Satan's plan over Christ's plan is because Satan had a plan. And we want to follow a guy with a plan. We want to be told that everything's okay. And I feel like I'm kind of going that way with Julie Rowe. I'm like, whenever I feel stressed or worried, I just got to watch her. Somebody out there's got it all figured out. That, that woman's got bunkers. We have bunkers of wheat somewhere that someone is going to live off and they're going to carry on the population. It'll be Julie Rowe and her posterity. That just makes me feel good. Do you guys want to talk about, let's talk about her videos and then let's talk about her and the Daybells because I think it's important. Uh, what spurred this podcast is Jacob and I were watching a video of Julie Rowe, one of her latest ones. And Jacob, I want you to sort of explain what the videos are, what she's doing, who she's talking to. But she did one, now that uh, Chad and Lori Daybell are in the news and they've been so closely associated, she's come out and done a few videos. And one of the first videos I saw that I, you know, started paying attention to again, she was, it was when Lori Daybell's kids were missing. No one knew where they were. We still don't know where they are at this point in the recording. And Julie Rowe says her angels, her angels have told her that they're okay. She sort of makes a prophecy. So let's talk about that video. And then I want to talk about, uh, then Lisa, if you're okay giving us some updates on the theology and, and how we get it off the computer and all of that stuff, then we can talk about the video Julie Rowe did. Does that sound good? Yeah. So Julie Rowe, I mean, she, it's been really interesting to follow her since she kind of fell out of favor in 2015 because, you know, she started a nonprofit, the Greater Tomorrow Relief Fund, which is supposedly supposed to help people for these tribulations that are coming. But she also has this acolyte, I guess you could call him, Eric Smith, who's a former adjunct faculty member at BYU-Idaho. Um, I'm not sure if he's been excommunicated, but I would presume. Do you know if he's been excommunicated, Lindsay? Because he really, he believes Julie, like, 100%. So often they'll record either the Julie Rowe show or Eyes Open, and they're always in their cars. They're always sitting in their cars for the best podcast sound possible. Because that's apparently the best place to record podcasts. Um, and what really got me interested in Julie Rowe, again, like I've been interested since 2015, obviously, but when this whole Chad Daybell stuff went down, I was like, oh, let's see what Julie Rowe is up to. And she did this Eyes Open podcast. And initially, she was very, very defensive of Chad Daybell. She mentioned, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a falling out, but he's a good man. He's being misrepresented by the media. She said, I can see the kids, they're in Hawaii, they're smiling, they're happy, etc. And then she gradually, as more evidence started to come out, she started to back up a little bit and say, you know, my angels told me that I couldn't say this, but I can say this now. She's She started to kind of reveal some things that were associated with Chad and then started to kind of infer that there had been an affair with Lori. Um, and kind of tying it to modern to other news as well. She had a group energy healing session for the coronavirus, which I could do three podcasts on that one hour episode of eyes open because it was, there is so much to dig into with that. I mean, she's, 
you know, talking about how it's in the preservatives and the soaps, like I mentioned earlier, she's talking about how this is part, uh, like a prelude to the tribulations that are coming. She's talking about multiple mortal probations and how she uses her gifts and her angels. And, you know, she just has to work through the energy of all of this. Um, it's, it's interesting to see all of this because from my perspective, I, I view that free energy session and her subsequent energy work. It's probably the closest thing to priestcraft that I've ever seen in my real life, which I know sounds super critical, but she, she has these spiritual gifts and then she's asking people to pay money for them. Um, but it's, it's been very interesting to watch this whole thing happen in the context of Chad Daybell, because we know that they have, they share some beliefs. She did a podcast though where she claims that they don't have very different belief systems, but at the same time, they must share some commonality because they come from the same common roots. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Cause that was so funny. She did a, a podcast and all of you need to watch it. And Julie Rowe, you need to thank me for giving my listeners to you right now. And maybe you can come on and explain your theology later with me. But she did a podcast where she sort of explains the differences between her and Chad Daybell. And it was the greatest thing that I've ever watched because it was, she was like, we don't believe the same things at all. And then she would go into multiple immortal probations and talk about how they believe all the same things except for like one tiny little nuance. It was, it was amazing. So why don't we talk about what she talks about? Let's talk about their theology. But Lisa, give us, before we get into that, tell us about what they, the police found on the computer of Melanie's husband and, and all of that. Okay, so a couple of pieces of information or documents have come to light that explain some of these beliefs. The first was an email that seems to have been leaked in some way. That is the friend Melanie Gibb told information to a friend of hers or to many friends of hers. And one of these emails got out and it kind of talks about how they think people have been possessed and they think that Lori and Chad feel like they were married in previous lives, that Lori was also married to Moroni in previous lives. And then with this new document that came out appears to be a statement that Ian Pulowski, who is now the husband of Lori's niece, Melanie, prepared for his attorneys once he retained them after the case was going for a little while. It's kind of written to vindicate him and Melanie in some ways, but it's elaborate of what he says Chad's beliefs are. There are things like how high your vibration is. Your, it's a, got a stats section. There's a one to 100 scale for your libido, which then Julie Rowe refers to as your creation energy because she doesn't believe the same thing as Chad just by not calling it the same thing. But one thing that's really fascinating to me is the multiple mortal probations doctrine they think that they have lived lives on many other planets and that this is how you progress. I think at the root of it, they think that one mortal life, which is what's kind of the mainstream plan of salvation little diagram that you learn in primary, how could you learn everything you need to learn to be a god just by coming to earth for this short amount of time? So they think that you come again and again they don't want to call it reincarnation because you can't come back in a, you know, your soul can't come back as a dog or a butterfly or a blade of grass. You can, you have to always be a person. And Julie is very emphatic about that all the time. Uh, so they have a, a Jacob's Ladder theology. And I think they get a lot of this from Isaiah but it's kind of a climbing thing where you're Elohim, you're down at the bottom, you climb up by going through these various probations. And Julie and Chad, from what I understand, were on the same page together and were kind of, I don't want to say running this as a business, I don't have all the background on it, but they were both essentially doing readings for people on and telling people about who they were in their past lives, how many planets they had lived on, how many probations, what their eternal mission is, and whether they're a dark or a light spirit. And they 
use pendulum to do this and energy, you know, just different ways of reading energy. Part of their falling out was financial, but apparently part of it was that they were kind of diverging and giving people different readings and they kind of are splitting off from each other. Uh, Does anyone know anything else about that? I just want to ask a question and then someone else can answer. But in the dark and light spirit thing, it was my understanding that she was saying or that it was saying that you could get jolted. If a dark spirit entered, possessed your body, there were only two ways to get rid of it. That was a traumatic event or death. Was that right? I think it was saying a traumatic event was one way the dark spirit could get into you. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a Daybell belief. That is not a Julie Rowe belief. you got to be careful <laughs> here because they differ a lot on theology. <laughs> Tell us the new right, one. That Jacob. is a Daybell belief. Um, so if a dark spirit enters you, you could have a blessing to cast it out. There is a theology around casting out. This is with Mike Stroud as well. I don't know if you've talked about that. Quorum blessings, getting several priesthood holders together to do a casting out of a dark spirit, which makes me wonder why, why didn't they try that on Tammy if she had been possessed or on Charles? Because yeah, if you go a traumatic event, the dark spirit can go in, in Chad's theology. The only way to get it out is by the physical body dying is what he's saying. Do we see that? Is this a Mormon doctrine? Can we, I mean, So multiple mortal probations has been a debate in some fundamentalist groups. I know like, you know, Christ Church, Peterson missionaries, they were, who was a fundamentalist polygamist sect. They were asking that question, the missionaries, that was like one of the first questions. Do you believe in multiple mortal probations? And I was like, that's weird. What a weird question to ask. But I think it's because this is such a compelling idea. I actually think it's compatible with LDS theology, the idea of eternal progression if you're going to be there forever, there's also some doctrine that perhaps our God, our Elohim, lived a life like we did and had to go through the experiences that we did. And so I think it's a valid interpretation that living multiple probations uh, is something that, that can happen. It's sort of like reincarnation. What do you guys want to say on that? I love that this has been brought into the discussion because now I'm going to be one of those Mormons who's like on my mission, but I served a mission in Thailand. And so they're 98% Theravada Buddhist. And so this is like their bread and butter. Like we invite that good is how you say it in Thai, like reincarnation, you know, like we were born, we hurt, we die, we're reborn, etc. And as I've seen Julie Rowe approaching this, she really views multiple mortal probations as kind of a lost doctrine that is being restored and being talked about by her in her prophetic role. And so I have loved to see how they're discussing this in kind of this Mormon context and using these Mormon tools to interpret it. It's like, you know, the, the Buddhists and the Hindus, you know, it's just the apostasy that happened. And now that we understand this using our Mormon framework, we can now understand that it's multiple mortal probations to become more like God, etc. Um, so I really just think this has been really interesting as we've been exploring this a little bit with Julie Rowe and now to see the Daybells taken even a step further. Man, I've been living for it. So uh, one thing I would add to that is, so likewise, I don't think I ever really heard about this when I was like a missionary or when I was going to church. And and so, but, but definitely the concept of like this this life being a moral probation, that was definitely something we would talk about. But I but I don't think I ever really considered that um, reincarnation might be a thing in, in Mormon theology. So, uh, so it's been an interesting thing for me to learn about as well. Um, as we've been kind of talking about the differences between like the Daybells and the Rose, um, their doctrines, or you know, even like mainstream Mormonism versus uh, like the, the, these more extreme elements, the, the, these fringe elements, like the, the prepper movements and whatnot. Um, it's it's interesting to me to to see that I think in this group here we have a pretty good cross section of, of a wide spectrum I guess maybe of Mormonism but if you're kind of in the in group then you're you're almost you almost have to stake a certain claim and and defend your territory and so it sounds like there's this you know we, that they try to that the people try to say you know that this is this is what a true Mormon believes, or this is what 
you know, what, uh, you know, we believe or we have the fullness of this truth. Whereas, you know, I think in, the, in this group, in our discussion here, we, we kind of see that all of this is really all connected to the, those doctrines, the, the essential doctrines that go back to like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Yeah, well said. I think that's a good way, a good way to phrase it, because that's, that's the biggest wake up call that I've had about, you know, this podcast is, gosh, everybody processed their Mormonism like I did in some way, right? We all thought we had the truth. We all thought we were restoring the gospel. And fundamentalism is really an exercise in restoring the restoration, right? And so we see that with the snuffer movement. And we see that with, and there's a lot of crossover actually with uh, some of the prepper people in the snuffer movement. Although I think that they're, the Daybell thing is making everyone sort of back off from that. But let's talk about uh, Lisa or Jacob or Nathan, do you guys want to bring up some more doctrines that they talked about and sort of parsed out? We talked about dark spirits, multiple mortal probations. I actually think one that I think is really interesting is the idea of polygamy. Can we talk about that? Because Chad is sort of talking about, according to this document that you talked about, Lisa, that he can have multiple spouses. Julie Rowe sort of gave a different, a different idea to that. And when I interviewed a few folks talking about the remnant movement or the snuffer movement, we talked about something called bonded marriage. So what had happened was one of this doctrines had showed up in Denver snuffers door about bonded marriage, which is the idea that in a previous probation, a previous spiritual life, let's say Nathan and I were married. He was Abraham and I was Abraham's wife. And, now, and we were sealed together in the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an eternal sealing. And now Nathan and I find ourselves in our second probation or whatever, and we're still sealed. So even though we're not married and Nathan's married to someone else or whatever, it's okay that we're together. That was kind of the doctrine of bonded marriage. And, and Denver Snuffer, sorry to use you, Nathan. <laughs> You're just on my screen right now. Denver Snuffer had to say, no, that's a false doctrine. But it sounds like Julie Rowe and Chad Daybell are experimenting with something similar. Do you guys want to talk about that? I could say something. But if I'm talking too much, you need to call on someone. No, I have been waiting for someone to... I've been like, where is polygamy? It's like the elephant in the room with this story. So I was looking into this and trying to figure out how... How big is this supposed cult? You know, are we talking about a cult of two people, Chad and Lori, or is this an actual cult that has more followers? And came across a blog of Eric Smith, who uh, Jacob mentioned as the co-podcaster with Julie Rowe, that is called Fringe Doctrine, and everyone should go see it if they can. But he has a pyramid diagram talking about doctrines that are fringe doctrines compared to the mainstream at the time, but then become the mainstream or become the important doctrines uh, as the church moves into becoming the church of the firstborn, which is another, you know, recurring theological thing in Mormonism and among a lot of fringe groups. But on his pyramid was one fringe doctrine that he kind of left blank. And it said, though it said in our current times, the Polygamy was the fringe doctrine of the current times, but in now it's fringe doctrine, the higher law of marriage is what it said. And I had this big question mark pop up over my head of higher law of marriage. What is that? And so I have been researching and trying to figure out because it seemed like it was related to polygamy. Like, what can be more than polygamy? What could the higher law of marriage be? And I have only found a few of the threads. I would have to probably embed into one of the groups to really figure it all out. But um, did come across an anonymous blog that talked about kind of what you just talked about, Lindsay, of your person, even if you're temple sealed to someone in your current life right now, say my husband and I, we're sealed. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily actually sealed to me as my eternal spouse. I could have a true spouse that I'm sealed to with the Holy Spirit of promise, like you mentioned. But then I read someone that was um, kind of got in a tiff with Julie Rowe, and it's another one of these prep people. And she said that Julie Rowe has been going around and telling multiple different men that they are all sealed to Julie. 
And she will, this person claims that Julie does this to get these men to donate to her relief fund or to, you know, get her things, but she'll just has told multiple, you know, dozens or more men that they're sealed to her. And then in her most recent podcast, I believe she addressed it a little bit and said, yes, men can be sealed to more than one woman and women, women can be sealed to more than one man. And, but we're all bonded to Christ. I mean, it's a little bit similar along the lines of regular Mormon doctrine in some ways, or things that Joseph Smith was doing back in the early times when he was sealing men to himself. Someone have. Yeah. That, that, when Julie said that about men being able to, you know, men and women being able to be sealed to multiple people, I kind of thought how in main, the mainstream LDS church, we're all about kind of the nuclear family being sealed, but Julie Rowe, it seems like is much more interested in, you know, people can be sealed to multiple people. We're just trying to seal the entire human family. And I think that is much more of a kind of a Joseph Smith, early Mormonism teaching. And that's why I think a lot of people who are mainstream LDS still continue to identify with Julie Rowe because she knows how to speak this language that harkens back to kind of, you know, the early days of the restoration of the church and, all of these doctrines that maybe the church is slightly modified to meet, you know, the the world standards. I always say that in Mormonism, if you're using Mormonism as your building blocks for your theology, you have to contend with polygamy at some point. And we see it play out in a variety of different ways. But as we can see, as Lisa talked about, as you talked about, Jacob, they are experimenting with this theology because polygamy or ceilings, if they go on for eternity and you can live multiple lives, that's not a crazy doctrine, right? That that like is a, an extension of it, but I think it gets super, super messy as we're seeing with the Chad and Lori thing. And, and maybe you guys can talk about other doctrines that you think are really surprising or shocking or a little, you know, far-fetched or something. But so far... A lot of what Julie Rowe was saying, I could track it. I was I was uh, fluent enough in Mormon parlance and language that I could like track her logic. Is there anything that you guys were like, no, that's a bridge too far? I mean, <laughs> I know a lot of it is a, a lot for if you're not a believer at all. But what do you guys say about her theology or Chad or Lori's theology? So I, I think one of the big ones for me was when it was like a month or two ago when there was a video that came out that talked about zombies. Um, and so I was like, what? <laughs> zombies? I've never heard of Mormons talking about zombies before, but you know, but talking about like people be being possessed by, um, by evil or dark spirits. I mean, that's something that is a lot more relatable. And, and I think that that's kind of really what that is getting at. It's interesting that they use that, that terminology though, that they, because that's, that also came out in the, in the court or the documents that were found on Ian Pavlowski's, uh, computer as well. So that was, a, that was an interesting one to me. Yeah. Jacob or Lisa, do you guys want to talk about the zombie doctrine? Oh man. When I saw that, when that came out in the news, I, I was like, at first I was like, this is way off the rails because I was like, this does not fit in with kind of the rest of the fundamentalist Mormon beliefs. But then I was like, well, if you believe that you're a God and you believe you're one of the chosen who's going to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ and these people are not going along with your plan, maybe it's, you know, the adversary has deceived you. We hear this from mainstream Mormons when people leave the church, you know, you've been deceived by the adversary. And so I think that at first I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is a stretch a little bit. But then I thought of, you know, my own experience with leaving the church and kind of how people responded to that, you know, besides the big, big elephant in the room being that I'm gay, um, you know, being deceived by the adversary that, and then I just saw how they kind of took that to a whole nother uh, level with their magical worldview in general. I was like, okay, this actually makes sense in context. now. I think it was interesting. Again, zombies is also what caught me off guard, just the use of the word, because it's nowhere in Mormon theology, the way that, possessed or, you know, um, taken over by even a dark spirit is a little bit more within our lexicon. But so I researched into the word zombies a bit and found out that it 
is a word that's used quite a bit in these prepper and kind of conservative and right wing groups. It's quite a bit all over a vow, not used in the exact same way that Chad and Lori are of someone whose spirit got taken over. But zombies are considered to be a literal foe in the last days, not waking and walking dead type of people, but um, they'll call them commie zombies sometimes. And it's, it's basically just a pejorative about liberal politics people. And also potentially in the last days, they think that when prescription drugs are not available and illicit drugs are not available, that people with addictions will become like zombies. So the word is out there. I didn't realize it was. Also, can we talk about aliens? That's been showing up in the theology. There's some ideas that interplanetary beings or people from outer space are coming in. How does that fit in? Does anyone want to comment on that? Nobody? Are you talking about, I mean, they do think that they can travel with it between planets, portal travel, or what some people would call astral projection, but I'm not sure I... Nathan's saying teleportation. How does that fit into... That was the one that I feel like you could... That's an extension of Mormon doctrine, but I don't really... I mean, if you could hide a collab, I guess that's in our hymns. Is that hying? They're just doing a lot of hying everywhere. What's happening? See, I I wish I knew. This is another one that's really interesting to me um, because what we've heard is that uh, Lori, I think she had like a a portal in her closet or something. I I don't remember all the details. There's so many things and I just can't keep it straight anymore. But um, yeah, so she was able to travel through this portal to see Chad in Idaho when she was like in Arizona, if I'm getting the story correct. Um, so yeah, I, I, but I, I don't understand it <laughs> very well. It's, it's one of those interesting, strange things that's come out. The other thing that I thought was a little, well, there's two things that I think were a little off base that I'm just, this case is so complicated. There's so much to sort through. And when you have a figure like this and all this information is coming out, it's a little bit overwhelming. The two things that I thought, maybe don't quite track with mainstream Mormon theology, and maybe Lindsay, you could speak to this a little too, is Satan actually being a fallen apostle and having a body, which I thought was a little bit unique because one of the kind of most important things about the Mormon plan of salvation is that we came to earth to get a body so that we could, you know, have this probation, probationary period, or in their case, multiple probationary periods. So I think that was one thing that was a little interesting to me. And also, I'm just going to say the other thing that I think everyone thought was really interesting is that the spells from Harry Potter are real, apparently. That was one thing that I was like, that is that is not mainstream Mormon theology. I mean, it is in the sense that Mormons love Harry Potter and Disney. And that's what puts us apart from a lot of evangelical Christians is we still claim Harry Potter as one of our articles of faith, I think. <laughs> just kidding. We don't officially, but is the... Is that a Julie Rowe doctrine or is that a Chad Daybell? I think you should clarify, Jacob. Yeah, that seems to be a Chad Daybell doctrine. I mean, it says in this document that was submitted to the court that, um, what does it say exactly? That Satan is, oh, Satan is a re- is a being who was a fallen apostle. Let me get it up here. Really I feel like it. I'm going to say this. This is kind of rude, but being in Chad Daybell's head is like, an Orson Scott card fever dream. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it just sounds <laughs> really scary. So Lucifer has a body was once an apostle and fell. And then Cain was the first dark being to be translated in this creation and walks the earth with 50 translated beings to prevent delay the Lord's second coming. Oh yeah. The Cain thing. Didn't Julie Rowe claim that she met him at the Salt Lake airport? She met him at the Salt Lake airport. <laughs> yeah, of course she of course. Uh we probably like, have too and we didn't know it. When she said Chad believes that there are dark translated beings and there is no way they are. And I can't remember what's the number. There was only like 50 of them and the two detectives from the Rexburg Police Department happened to be two of Kane's dark translated beings. But then Julie Rose says Chad is so wrong on that. There are not dark translated beings. They're shapeshifters. 
I, I think those nuances exactly. are really important and we want to do some responsible podcasting here and make sure that we distinguish that Julie Rowe does not believe that they are dark beings. They are shapeshifters, which sounds a little Harry Potter to me. Lindsay, I think you're also going to have to do another podcast about why all roads in this case lead to Rexburg, Idaho, of all <laughs> places it in really does. the world. I don't know what's going on in Rexburg. Uh, I don't know why Idaho, but there's a lot of this sort of germina- germinating in Idaho. And we're getting on in time, but I do want to, we've sort of managed to stay away from speculation on Lori Dayball. Everyone's asking where are the kids, but I think the concerning point, I, I have long speculated that I, I think it's a possibility that the children are alive, that they've been storing them in some bunker somewhere for some greater purpose as I've tracked the theology. But when the zombie stuff came out, that was really disheartening for me because it sounds like Lori was suggesting or intimating through at least a speculation on that we found through his documents on the computer that her children were possessed by dark spirits and needed to be taken care of. Is that accurate to say based on what we know? So that, that was my read on it. Unfortunately, um, I was kind of in the same boat. I was thinking that they're probably just with some prepper group and I, I didn't understand the movement well enough to even know where that might be, but you know, rural Idaho, I, I assume um, that, that was, that was my thought. But yeah, when the zombie video came out and as we've heard more about zombies, um, th- then that really caused some doubt for me. And unfortunately for me, I know that Chad was quoted as saying, the kids are safe. And when he said that, and looking in the entire context of everything and the belief of multiple mortal probations and in the belief of, um, you know, the zombies, I actually believe that they thought they were doing a service potentially. I mean, knock on wood, I do not believe that the, the kids are alive, unfortunately, um, but I think that he thought he and Lori possibly thought that they were doing the Lord's work by um, providing them another chance and another uh, mortal probation. So an- another thing that I would add to that is um, I'm not sure that he was even talking about her kids. So he he was asked the question, you know, where are the kids or how are the qu- how are the kids? And he may have just as well been talking about his own adult children. This one's hard because I am an eternal optimist. I want to believe that the kids are fine and they're just, you know, being fed some really sort of extreme radical doctrines right now and, you know, dressed in white somewhere in a bunker. But yeah, I think, I don't know. I I just think that I, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of violent conclusions to Mormon fundamentalism. We've talked about, I mean, the LeBarons, for example, where Ervil LeBaron uses doctrine to murder a lot of people, he called his church the same thing, the Church of the Firstborn. There's a lot of scriptures that depending who's driving the wheel, like if 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 theology or doctrine was a car, depending on who's driving the wheel depends on how they interpret it. And a lot of it is just usually benign people. It's, you know, I always say three guys in the living room with an altar. But sometimes it goes really, really dark. And and I think that that's a concern for many of us here. Okay, do you guys have any closing thoughts? Want to wrap up things we didn't get to, things that you think people should know, uh, ways that people can sort of keep track of this if they're interested? I think that when Mormons, uh, when mainstream Latter-day Saints cast aspersions on these people and say, you know, they're nothing like us, that we really have to take a hard look in the mirror because I think that for years, Chad Daybell was, you know, faithful man living in Springville with his wife and kids. He married his high school sweetheart, essentially. And, you know, like now he's involved in this entire situation where children are missing and people are hurt and there's, uh, you know, a cult going on. I think that Mormons really need to take a look in the mirror and say, the tools that I'm using within Mormonism to interpret world events and to interpret my worldview are those reflective of reality and are those producing outcomes that are healthy? And I think we all have to do that because this case has shown that things can take a turn for the worse really quickly. Yeah, really well said. So, right. And it really, everything has moved so quickly in, especially since October um, with Chad remarrying so soon after, uh, after Tammy died. I mean, with, uh, Lori looking into wedding rings prior to her death and, um, 
and with the, the kids disappearing and so forth, it's all moved very quickly. And as we've talked about, you know, sort of this tendency to uh, want to guard our own communities and, say, and, you know, and draw lines in the sand as far as like who is, is what. Um, I, I'm, and we're also aware that the church is concerned about these groups as well. Um, in 2017, there was uh, the, the, the more, was it faith leaks or, or Mormon leaks at the time, but um, published a, a PowerPoint that, that talked about, that, that had a slide that talked about reasons that uh, people are leaving the church. And it cited these, these apocalyptic groups, these doomsday groups. And, um, and it cited like the, uh, and false prophets. Uh, there was a, a specific bubble for Denver snuffer, but, um, but on the far right, the, the reasons that people are leaving the church, the church has lost its way or is, or is deficient. Um, you need something more. You know, there's so much to explore in Mormon the- theology, and and now church is only two hours long. I mean, it, it almost creates more of a space uh, that needs to be filled um, for people to explore these things. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and I actually like that you both are saying that we can extrapolate lessons from this. You know, I talked about this on my Facebook. It sort of bothers me when LDS people are like, oh, that's not us. We don't believe those crazy things. And I'm like, you guys, all of us, all of us signed up for the belief that a 14-year-old kid pulled gold out of a ground from an angel. All right? And just because that's normal to you doesn't mean it's normal to other people. People think we're nuts. So use this as an opportunity to examine your own beliefs. Lisa, do you want to say anything else? You've been... I'm. I'm so glad Nathan found you. You're such a great addition to this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was going to say basically the same thing, that these groups are a microcosm in a way of our larger religion, even the way that they in-group, out-group, or how satisfying it feels to be part of a group that you feel is special. And that's the same feeling that we often have in the larger church. I feel like in a way, also the groups, there's that saying where it's like they create the sickness and then sell you the cure. Julie Rowe kind of makes me think of that because her books made people feel very anxious and scared about what was to come. And then she uses her energy healing that people pay her for to clear those negative emotions, you know? And so, but I think we need to watch out for that in our lives anyway. I see a lot of escalation of commitment in these type of groups where like when the prophecies don't prove true, you find another way to interpret it because you already made the choice to believe and be a part of it. And you don't want to go back and question your own past judgment. We're very, you know, tied to thinking of ourselves as people who make good decisions. So Uh, I see that happening in these groups as well. So I definitely see it as just a little mirror that we can hold up to ourselves as people who may have come from the mainstream church. Yeah, and I I think it's also kind of sad to me that Mormons have to try so hard to find spiritual expression. I mean, I know every sect of religious belief has fringe believers. They have, you know, fundamentalists, extremists or whatever, but... I think Mormonism and my experience with all of these different over 480 whatever expressions of Mormonism and counting is sort of the result of a really hierarchical bureaucratic institution that's sort of trying to commodify spirituality. And I don't think that you can. I mean, I remember one of my biggest spiritual experiences when I started questioning LDS truth claims. I was in sacrament meeting and I I almost heard the voice of God saying, Lindsay, you try to come up with a church that works for everybody. And and I think about that a, lo- a lot. I don't know that you can create a theology that makes sense to people without giving them flexibility to adapt it to their lives. And and I think that this is the result of, of that. And I don't, I think Mormonism is going to always struggle with this problem until it gets clear on itself on where personal revelation comes in, where eternal growth and eternal progression comes in. So anyway, I, th- I thank you guys for coming on here and helping us explore these questions. We might, if this keeps going, we might come back and do another one. So hopefully we're helping provide some relief to people have a stressful time we're sending all of our love and good energy as julie would say 
I'm sending my angels to watch over you right now. So everybody uh, take care of yourself and stay healthy and don't touch your face. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.